you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as, God, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you all also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all again. Good to uh, see the folks. On, I don't see you, but good to have the folks on Zoom with us as well. Uh, last week, we saw that the power enabling us to practice reconciliation as Jesus, our King, requires of us as citizens in his, it's his kingdom, and that's what he requires of us. We saw that the power to do that, which is a thing that's rare in the world, actually. Uh, we, we specialize as earthlings in conflict, strife, you know, demonizing, otherizing, polarizing. Uh, that's our thing. But in the kingdom of Jesus, reconciliation, conflict resolution, um, coming together in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ is the thing. And so we saw that that's the engine or the power that enables us to be people who are peacemakers, people who are committed to love and unity that are supposed to characterize Christ's body, which is the church. The problem is um, churches are, um, skip that one. Churches are composed of people, and people are as different as snowflakes. I don't, you know, I know some of us in this church better than others of us. That would be the case for anybody in here. Um, if some of us were in the same family growing up, biological family, um, nuclear family. Um, and so you're going to have a lot more knowledge of those other people. But all of us are different. We're different in temperament. We're different uh, in, in terms of where we came, come from, what group we would be placed in by different people, sociologists or politicians or whomever. And so we're talking about diversity. We're not all the same. We're diverse. We're different. Diversity is a fact of life. It's a fact of life today, just as it was a fact of life in the first century. Century. And nevertheless, Paul says this in Colossians 3.15, the passage that Jake just read. You were called in one body called in one body. So I want to focus in on this idea of being called in one body, the implications for unity and togetherness and fellowship that that phrase would suggest. Today, I want to overview the concept from this text, Colossians 3, 9 through 17. And um, then over the next few sermons, perhaps we'll take a deeper dive into some of the individual points that we merely uh, hit the the surface of today. So let's talk about being called in one body. 
What this means on the ground is diversity and yet at the same time unity in the kingdom of God. Um, diversity and unity in the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about over the next few lessons. So the first point I want to make is the, the one that's the most obvious coming out of that phrase called in one body. And that is that what I'm going to call unity in diversity is our calling. Now, let me just do a disclaimer. Unity in diversity, I don't know where that phrase originally came from. It's been used for thousands of things since the 70s, at least. Um, I'm not signing on. Don't, I'm, this is not jargon for me. That's not a, a buzzword or a slogan. I'm not using, I don't know, I don't even know. <laughs> Let's come up later. Unity and diversity, that means, it doesn't to me. It just means what it looks like. We're a lot of different things, and yet in Christ, we're supposed to be one thing. We're diverse, but you can see a unity above that. The diversity isn't gone. It's not erased, but there's something above that and beyond that to, we all, to which we all adhere that is much more dominant in our lives as the kingdom of God. What this point is about is that this is nothing less than our calling. You hear somebody say, well, he was, he's such a good carpenter. He, he, he found his calling. Or so-and-so missed their calling. They're doing this, but they're really good at that, right? Or we, read it, we, we hear about you know, the, the call of Saul on the road to Damascus or the call of the gospel. I'm talking here about something like that. Unity and diversity, when you're talking about being the church of Jesus, is nothing less than our calling. I want you to notice something here. Being one body, even in the face of our many differences, is at the heart of what Christianity is. It's not something on the edge. A footnote, something we get around to later. This, this is the whole thing. Can you be connected to Jesus and not be connected to the parts of Jesus that are his body, right? It's all, it all goes together. If I'm a body part and I'm not connected to one part of it, then you could argue I'm not really connected. It's a whole or you got problems, right? So, and so the point I'm trying to make here is, is that it's never really been the case that the gospel is merely concerned with individuals in their relationship to God. That's a key part of it. Uh, when you come to Christ, you come as an individual, but it's not merely that. And we've often in our culture made it merely that, almost exclusively that. Um, we require that people come to church, you know, that's about it. We don't think of the whole thing as you're involved in a communitarian kind of operation here. And I believe this is because of the, the highly individualized culture that we often mention here that's just an, a known thing to anybody who studies these sorts of things. In, in America, we've taken individualism, um, the whole modern West does, but we've taken it to a whole new level. And what happens is we read our Bibles, folks, through a filter. So when I'm reading my Bible, we always think it's just me, my eyeballs, and the Word of God. I've got it upside down, so my, my eyeballs need some help. But we often, though, have a filter that we lay over it that we don't, we're not aware of, maybe three or four different filters. And a lot of them come from our culture. And, and you've heard me before define or, or echo, I, I didn't make this up, but a good definition of culture is the water the fish swims in. Fish doesn't know it's in water. It's just its atmosphere. It knows it's water when it's in water when you take it out. And so sometimes we can see our own cultural you know, assumptions when we leave our country or are taken back by reading to another time and place or maybe a really good 
you know, movie or miniseries or something, though I don't think that's pa as powerful personally as reading in terms of neurology, but um, it, it's hard to do that. We don't see our filters very readily. One of the filters that we lay over the Bible in effect when we read it often in our part of the world and in our day and time is individualism. And what that does is it screens out all the collective language, the communitarian implications. We're just thinking, oh, it's about, this is about me and God. Most of the time in the Bible, it's not. We've said before, three quarters of the word of the times you appears, it's a, it's a plural. It's, it's y'all or you guys, it's not you individually. You know, for instance, in our circles, we often stress the essentiality of baptism, right? Somebody wants to come to Christ and be saved. We say, you need to be baptized. That's what they did in the Bible. Let me show you. It, it, you know, nobody questioned that for hundreds of years. So it, we're, we're right to stress the essentiality of baptism. But baptism into Christ in the language of the New Testament, in the language of the Bible, doesn't just connect me to Christ, whom Paul calls the head of his church body, but it also signifies my relationship to the rest of Christ's body. Baptism displays this remarkable oneness of diverse peoples as they emerge from the waters of their new birth. So 1 Corinthians 12 can say this, um, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ for, he's just reminding them, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Unless we're thinking the implication here is, well, you got, that's what I'm saying. I got baptized, I got saved, I got in the church. No, he's saying a lot more than that. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, this idea that you, your identity can just be, I'm a Jew or I'm a Greek. It can be based on your nation or your race or your ethnicity or your social status. I'm slave, I'm free, I'm something else. I'm rich, I'm poor. Whatever. He says, no, that, that is eclipsed. And well, transcended is a better word. It doesn't go away, but there's something higher than that into which you are baptized. Yes, you're baptized for remission of sins. You're also baptized into one body, into a unity of diversity. This isn't the only place the Bible says that. And so to say that unity and diversity is our calling is to say this, we're, that's what we enter when we enter Christ. It's at the heart of it all. It's not on the edge or on the periphery or some afterthought we might get around to. Um, it's at the heart of the whole thing. We also can see this in Galatians chapter 3. Where Paul says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there, instant implication for Paul, there is neither Jew nor Greek. I thought you were talking about baptism. I am. That's what baptism does. It's not just about you getting your sins remitted. It is that. It's also you getting the Holy Spirit. If we want to really get into all of it, baptism has several implications, not just the ones that we've traditionally emphasized. Not throwing that out. I'm saying, let's bring the others in if we're going to be biblical. This is one of them. And it's repeated over and again. When you're baptized into Christ, it's, you're now more than your ethnicity or race, Jew and Greek. You're more than your social status, slave or free. You're more than your gender, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All right? Simple point, but it's a really profound point. Um, and the diversity that composes the church, it, it may be challenging to us. We're given this mandate for unity, and when everybody's different, you know, that can become difficult at times. But what I'm suggesting to you is that without this unity and diversity reality, we really aren't being the church. Hmm? How, how are we, if those verses say that? 
What would you say if somebody said, well, I can be a Christian without being baptized? You'd say, well, look, the, the language of the Bible here says you put on Christ. Let them tell you, though, in the next phrase, it is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, born nor free, male or female. Or go back to 1 Corinthians. You see what I'm saying? That's just as much in the biblical language. That's what the church is. All right? It was a distinguishing feature of early Christianity. It's what made the church the church in many ways. It's what made it look different than the Roman Empire. In fact, I've been looking at a book this week called Destroyer of the Gods. I don't know if you can see the subtitle. It's by, a, 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 I don't know if he's Scottish, but he was a New Testament professor at uh, St. Andrews or Aberdeen, one of the Scottish seminaries. And um, the subtitle is Early Christian Distinctiveness, Can I See It? In the Roman World. So the book is basically about how in the world did Christianity take off in the Roman Empire's culture? Because for a long time, scholars, classicists, and uh, you know, historians of, of ancient Christianity would talk about the many ways in which there was a kind of um, uh, congruity between some of the New Testament's things and some of the Roman Empire's features. It actually, in many ways, could tap into that. Maybe that's part of what the fullness of time was, you know, Roman roads and a lingua franca, everybody, well, at least in one half of the empire, was speaking Latin and so on. Hurtado kind of goes the other direction. He doesn't negate all that, but he says, you still got to account for the unlikely fact that this little motley crew of disciples who don't believe you can see God on earth in a stone form or, who, you know, in the image in the back of a coin, that this thing could take off and even eclipse the Roman Empire, hence the title, Destroyer of the Gods. Here's what he says about um, this unity and diversity being an essential, not a peripheral, but a, a core marker of what made Christianity different. From well within the first couple of decades, the Jesus movement became, notice the word, I've got these highlighted, trans-ethnic in composition. That is, from this early point onward, early Christian religious identity was not tied to one's ethnicity and did not involve a connection to any particular ethnic group. Early Christians likewise reflected a sense of being part of a larger translocal association. So you can't just say, oh, their God is the God of Palestine, right? Deities were always located. They were sighted, right? And they usually went with a certain ethnicity, the God of the Canaanites, the God of the Egyptians, the gods of, the, of uh, you know, Mesopotamia. This is unique in the world in that it is trans-ethnic and translocal. Their association cut across ethnic lines, taking in people of various nations, their only connection to believers in other places and of other nations being a shared religious commitment. Then he quotes the passage we just looked at. Galatians 3.28, or in Galatians 3.28, Paul famously declares that by their baptism into Christ, their ethnic, social, and gender distinctions are to be regarded as relativized radically. Not gone, but they're demoted or relativized. That's not all you are. All believers of whatever ethnic, sexual, or social class now are one in Christ Jesus. Paul did not treat these distinctions as actually effaced or you know, taken away, but these distinctions were no longer to function as ways of justifying discrimination in the, the, in the treatment of one another. The church was unique in this sense, and this is one of the things that made it unique. And I want you to notice something further from Galatians 3. When Paul says that when we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into a one body where there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, and, and all that. He then says this. He goes all the way back to Genesis and says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What's he talking about here? 
This is one of the Bible. When I took freshman uh, Bible, uh, when I was 18 years old, in college I went to, we had to memorize in one of the classes, I can't remember what, five key scheme of, oh, it's called class called Scheme of Redemption. That's what it was. Scheme of Redemption passages. You had to memorize all the context around it. These are like the bedrock pillars of the story of the Bible. The promise to Abraham was the first one. It appears in several chapters. It's reiterated several times. It's so important in, in, in the book of Genesis, one of which is Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham, in your offspring, and your descendant, and your seed, some versions say, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, this is what I'm talking about. This is what Christianity is. When you're baptized into Christ, you are now one of those nations that is coming together to be blessed by the descendant of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is who that is, right? God is going to make a nation of Abraham's descendants, and one of the offsprings coming out of that nation is going to be how God blesses all the nations or tribes of the earth. Talk about diversity. The plan from the get-go was to enfold all the world's peoples way before we existed as a nation. I mean, that is, that's a joke statement, right? We're, we've been around five minutes. All you got to do is go somewhere like Europe and you go like, yeah, this is, sorry, this is so new. It's from 1550. Like, we don't have anything like that. A ruin maybe from some conquistadors in Florida, but mostly our stuff is, you know, that's like old here, but mostly it's, it's very new. From the beginning, all the nations of the earth were to be enfolded into God's people to become God's people, to constitute God's people. And this is one of the central themes of the whole Bible. This is why when Jesus issues his great commission, among the last thing he says before he leaves this planet to ascend back to the right hand of God, he comes to them in Matthew 28 and says, go therefore and make disciples of whom? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if, if any Christian is uncomfortable with diversity, well, they need to know they'll be spending eternity, all of eternity, with every kind of people, apparently speaking every kind of language that God ever made. That's what Revelation tells us over and over again. And it, why wouldn't it? The whole Bible's been telling us that, if we're not reading it through a filter that screens that out. Revelation 5, 9, remember the 24 elders and the other heavenly beings are, are praising the Lamb Christ here, and they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, language which was used of Israel back in Exodus. Now it's used of everybody, because Israel was called out to be sent back in to the world, to be a light to the nations. And it says here what Genesis 1.28 says about Adam and Eve. And the original plan for all humanity, you're going to reign on the earth. You're going to reign with God over a new heavens and new earth. This is repeated, something similar anyway, down in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice. Sounds like one of the songs we sing. Salvation belongs to our God. <clears throat> excuse me, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the church is, by definition, at least 
It's supposed to be a unity in diversity. <clears throat> and we got to hold both of those in tension. It's a unity and diversity at the same time. We don't lose our differences. You become a Christian. If you're, if you've got OCD, you know, do you just that go away? No. If you're really chill to the point of being like too chill to your neighbors, that go away? No. In fact, both of those can be used. That OCD person can help us be careful and cautious. The chill person can help us to like let the spirit flow, man. What are you worried about? God's got it. There's a time and place to talk both those ways, right? Temperaments are diverse. We don't lose that. Our skin color doesn't change. Our social class doesn't change. Our culture doesn't change. It's hard for people to change a culture on a dime. That's wired into us for years. It doesn't just instantly change. God may start working on these things, all of them. Not skin color, but the others, you know, it's a little, he's working on uh, your language isn't going to change. If you're, if you're a, a person that speaks whatever language, you become a Christian, you still speak that language. Your nation doesn't change unless you decide to move. So diversity stays there, but it's a unity in the diversity. After all, it is human beings in all our divinely created diversity who are the ones being called. This is God's way. Red and yellow, black and white. They are... Everybody knows it. Jesus loves the little children of the world. But to make this amazing unity and diversity happen, we need a new identity. We need a new identity. What do we mean by identity? Let's go back now to our text that Jake read a minute ago from Colossians 3. And in verse 9, he says this, you have put off the old self, the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self. This is growing straight out of the resurrection. Remember up the top of the chapter, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, your thinking should change. You're putting off old things, putting on new things. One of the things, I would say the heart of what we're putting off and on is a new self. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, Christ is all and in all. Old versus new self. What, what does identity mean? Well, our, our identity is our fundamental idea of self that we carry around in our head. That may sound abstract, but identity is what you live out of. That, that's the fountain that produces you your priorities, the things that jazz you up, the things that scare you to death, the things you think are important, not so important. Identity is why we do what we do. It's why we react the way we react. It's why we accept some things but feel threatened by other things. And lest this sound too abstract and too impractical, let me suggest to you that nothing I would argue that almost nothing has more practical relevance on the ground, boots on the ground relevance than your identity. Notice what verse nine says. Notice that it has an impact on our actions. Put off the old self with what? It's practices. I just want to talk about what we do, what we practice. Okay, then you got to talk about yourself. 
When, to talk about why you do what you do and how, why some people react this way and some people react that way, well, it's about which self you are. Put off the old self with its practices. Those go together. And sometimes we haven't come close, folks, to unpacking our identity, what it's in, what it's based in, what it's rooted in. Is that a solid basis for our identity or are I setting myself up to be vulnerable? We've all got an old identity, probably several of them. He's asking us to think critically about that, introspectively, to, to ask yourself why you think of yourself like you think of yourself and start thinking of yourself through the lens of the cross and resurrection. And when you do, your practice will be different. There's nothing more pragmatic and practical than working on your identity. That's where your practices come from. You can give people lists of concrete things to do without changing their identity. Before long, you know what's going to happen? They're going to center back on that identity. As soon as the guilt from the sermon or the meeting goes away, they're going to, they're going to come back to what is in their gut identity. That's what's got to be changed. And nothing has greater practical consequences. Well, our identity, to, say, to state the obvious, needs to be in Jesus Christ. Despite all, our, all of our differences, and there are many, different races, politics, generations, age, where we come from, if we are Christians, I want you to notice this. This is so important. Here, that is in this new self in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. Christ is in all. And more than that, he says Christ is all. Now, if Christ is in every one of us, despite our diversity, and for every one of us, Christ is all. He's everything. In other words, how are different I, I am from, you know, Carol, and Carol is from Greg, and Greg is from Nikki. If in all of us is this commonality of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and a new self based in that, and that's all for me, that's everything, then we've got a chance to be unity, to be unified. And if not, we don't really have a fighting chance. Christ is the ultimate image bearer, he, he continues here in uh, Colossians 3. We put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Who was the first person to bear the image of God? According to the Bible, Adam. He's made in the image of God. He was to be God's image bearer. Humanity was to be God's image bearer. Remember, God has dominion over all heavens and earth, and he calls human, humans to have dominion with him over all the fish of the sea and multiply and cover the earth and all that. He's saying, you're going to be my image bearer out there. Well, Adam, the first image bearer, and all of his descendants, everyone in the line of Adam, botched things up. With our pride and our fear, a rivalry and strife and oppression and exploitation. We kind of made a mess of God's world. And the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. And this image bearer got being human right in every place that the line of Adam got it wrong. And Jesus calls us to become part of him, to find our truest self, our highest identity in him. But I want you to notice something. Lest we become impatient with ourselves or with one another. 
This identity formation that we're talking about is a process. Verse 10 says this, we put on the new self, which is being renewed. Present tense. It, it doesn't, you don't just flip on a dime. Well, he became a Christian. He shouldn't be that way. A lot of times new Christians think that way. It's, they're very idealistic and it's beautiful. And then they have to learn, well, the old man's still in us too, you know, and we have to go back and forth, but we are being renewed. We, we're not going to be renewed if we're not committed to an identity in Christ, to the process of having that new identity formed in us, but it is happening uh, in an ongoing way. Let me tell you one of the things without which it will not happen. Look at the next phrase, being renewed in what? In knowledge after the image of our creator. This doesn't occur overnight, this process of having a new identity formed in Jesus. We have to commit to it, but we have to commit to it in, in, in such a way that we allow our thinking to be changed. It's a renewal in knowledge. Think about that. Think about thinking. We've got to open up our mental universe to the knowledge of God and His way. And that doesn't always square up with what we've inherited. Even for Christians, lest we think we're immune from that problem, uh, we, we just ought to read the, the Bible on every page. Almost. The Pharisees thought they had it down straight some of the most orthodox, conservative people of their day. And they're wrong frequently, right? There's a lesson in that. The devil uses kind of a false conservatism at least as frequently as he uses rank paganism. Otherwise, the four gospels will be replete with interactions between Jesus and pagans. There's a few of those. Mostly he's talking to the religious leaders. And if the Pharisees, um, if there's anything they were not, it was loosey-goosey liberals. Why do you violate the traditions of our elders? They got, they got the Torah right. You're saying something different. And Jesus starts working on their thinking. Your righteousness has to, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're told here to have an identity in Christ. We have to be renewed on an ongoing basis. And it begins with knowledge. We've got to open up our mental universe to being challenged, to being transformed. Are we interested in that? It's not easy because it means cognitive dissonance, like kind of all the time. That's why your real faith needs to be in what Jesus did at the cross, not in some system or three or four doctrines or this or that or the other, which maybe your brethren don't even agree with you on. They're reading the same Bible you are. If your whole thing's based on some sort of legalistic transactional view of getting everything right, good luck. Talk 30 minutes with anybody else who believes in the Bible, you're going to disagree on something. But if our security is in Jesus and what he did at the cross for us, when he said, it is finished, then we can allow with safety and security, put ourselves in his hand and, and take on the next thing we need to talk about here, and that is the word. It's not an accident that after saying that we're renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, and that's how we get the new identity in Christ, that he then points us to the word of God, the word of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We come together and in song in this context, 
we teach and admonish one another. When we're singing, we're going to sing in a minute. Are you leading us, Daniel? He's picked songs, the lyrics of which are designed to have us teach each other, remind each other, challenge each other by the stories of the gospel. Replace the narratives of the world with the narrative of Jesus. And so the word of Christ has to dwell in us richly. The word's what renews our minds. So it's got to be given free reign in us to course through us, to examine and challenge us and change us. Will you allow it to do that? I'm not talking about coming together and reciting the same thing you've always heard. That's different. Cherry picking things that fit what you've always thought. So the cognitive dissonance doesn't blow your mind. I'm talking about the faith to go wherever this word takes us. That's what we tell everybody we believe. Does the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Are you full of it, to overflowing? Are you giving it free reign to challenge you and transform you? Now, obviously, that's not going to be the case if I seldom spend time in it. There's no word dwelling in me richly if I'm never there. I'm too busy. But neither will it be the case if we read Scripture through all these filters I was talking about, through these templates that we lay over it, that skew it, or domesticate it, or denature it. There are a lot of these filters. The filter of the familiar. That's, that's true, obviously. I wonder how many of our Bible conclusions are just cases of confirmation bias. And then it's worse because you think you got the Word of God stamped on that. Less likely to change it. Be, be wary of, ah, oh, that that's familiar, so therefore... Is that consistent when we tell, teach somebody the gospel? We're telling everything's unfamiliar to them. Or do we have it so figured out that we can't learn something new? That's a filter that can filter out the truth, the full truth of the Bible. The filter of my traditions would be another one. The filter of my politics. Goodness sakes, that's going on right now. Bible doesn't get a fair hearing because the minute a certain word is out, boom, there's some politically oriented sort of shunting to the side and it can't even be engaged. And that's happening no matter whether you left, right, whatever. If you're curious, I can, I can multiply examples of that app. That's not for now. But any filter put over the Word of God is going to keep it from dwelling in us richly, which keeps us from being renewed in knowledge, which keeps us from having a new identity, a new self in Jesus, which keeps us from being a unity in diversity, which is the whole point. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask myself, as we probe into some of these things, to open our minds. To be amenable to God's renewal of our mental world, our thought world, so that we can truly adhere to a new identity, without which we'll have little hope of looking like Christ's unified body. Okay, hopefully really quickly here. I want to talk about how diversity, though, can feel problematic. And yet in Christ's hands, the diversity that so often feels like a weakness or a problem holds great promise. The promise of diversity. It's not a weakness to be rejected, not in the hands of the one who was raised, but a strength to be leveraged for the gospel. Let's look at our text for today, and I want you to notice three areas in this text. There are others, but three here in Colossians 3, kind of potential problem areas for church unity, which in Christ can become strengths. And I'm only going to mention them here today because this is just an overview sermon. 
Um, we're just going to briefly tap into them, touch down, and then move on. But I want you to be thinking about how each of these areas that are mentioned in Colossians 3, um, how they could actually strengthen the body of Jesus, make us more effective at our mission. So here are these three areas, theaters of operation, if you will. You know, there's a battle going on. We talked about it. the principalities and powers have got something to say about all this. They love the chaos and the strife and the conflict and the identity politics and the whole bit. They love it. Just like this. Can you imagine them at night? Cheers. We destroyed another group of people. Made some other people hate some other people and fear some other people and not listen to other people. It's heyday out there. The church. We can't do anything about all that. We can do something about ourselves. And that starts with Monty. And with you. So I want to look at these three theaters of operation where we prove whether we really have taken this in or not, you know, out there in the world tomorrow and the next day and so on in our various interactions. One of them is the person to person interactions. Um, we've already been talking about that over the last few weeks, so we won't spend as much time on that. But notice what he says here in Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Like, don't give up at the drop. Bear with each other. It's a slower kind of process. That's, bear with doesn't make any sense if it happens instantly. Patience doesn't either. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Because he says, you know what? You're called in one body. So these are person-to-person, individual-to-individual kinds of interactions, and it's all of these traits of kindness and humility and meekness and forgiveness and grace and love and, and, and compassion. That's what we're to aspire to. Conflict, whether it's born of sin, one person offending another, or, or miscommunication, or just the diverse perspectives of different temperaments, it's a fact of life. It's in every marriage. It's in every sibling relationship. It's in every relationship between two best friends. If you've been best friends with somebody very long and have never got crossways at all, maybe I'm just an ogre, but I don't think you're that close. Or you can get a lot closer. Like I said last week, gears don't really spark unless they're close. They're not engaged. Yeah, we never, no problem. We're not going anywhere, you know. And, and, and so we, we need the lubrication of, of, of grace and love, compassion. So that's one area. I want you to think about you know, what the church would be like if we modeled the grace and compassion and forgiveness of heaven here on earth. That's what he's asking us to do. Secondly, people group to people group. Diversity can be individual. But it also can be the fact that we're from different groups. The world is, you know, it's all kinds of groups. They start in middle school, right? Nerds and jocks and goths. And I'm, 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 my taxonomy is way behind, you can tell. But, there, you know, there's some classification du jour. Um, there's a reason every teen coming of age movie has a biff. You know, this dude who's jacked and he's really cool, but he's really a jerk. You know, and he's shallow, but nobody's figured that out yet until the 10-year reunion. That, that's, that's a trope for a reason. Um, and, and think of all the things, race, ethnicity, language. How many independence movements 
around the world are going on right now, right? So you go to Spain, Northwest Spain, uh, North Central Spain, the Basque region. Wasn't too long ago they were bombing other people, wanting to be free. We're Basque. We're not, we're not in this Spanish language world. French Canada had one in the 70s. I don't know if that's still alive or not. We're, we're Quebecois. We don't, you know, we're not Anglophones. It's, go, it's all over the world. Always has been. Yugoslavia, let's make you into one big country. Didn't work. Lasted about, you know, half a century. And then it's the Balkans again. And you can just apply this to everything. Class, politics, age, differences in generations, culture, subculture. Strife between such groups has gone on since the fall, and it is going on now in full force. What if we in the body of Christ displayed something different? What if we held out actually, concretely, the real possible possibility of a unity that didn't just erase differences, but enjoyed them, celebrated them, and said, you know what, though? None of us is less than our race or people group, but all of us is more than that. Man, that would be something unique in the world. What if sincere empathy replaced the urge to dismiss everything that my tribe says I must reject out of hand? Look at this. Compassionate hearts. Compassion means you're listening to the other person. You, may, you didn't go through it, but you're suffering with them. You're trying to appreciate where they're coming. It's empathy, basically. Love means you're not thinking just about yourself and your kind. It's other-oriented. That's what love is by definition. I want to share something with you now. It's, it's a, a little bit of a long quote. So, Gary, you can take a nap if you want. You told me last week my quotes should only be this long. Amen, but sorry. Um, generally, he's right, actually. Um, there's research behind that, but I'm going to violate it today. This is from Tim Keller. We, we've quoted him here so many times. I think if you read Tim Keller, I, I feel pretty sure most people in this church would not agree with him on uh, you know, several uh, things. Um, but there's a whole lot that he, he's a very good exegete of scripture, very, very close reader of scripture. And I've learned a lot from, from him. Sadly, um, he's suffering from pretty serious cancer right now. But he wrote the foreword to this book I, I just got. Uh, uh, the book is a book called The Beautiful Community. Um, but in the foreword, he relays a story of when he was in seminary, you know, as a 20-year-old or something, 25-year-old. He and his wife had met, met in seminary. And they, they met a friend in the, in the cafeteria named Elward Ellis, who was a black uh, student in their seminary. And what he's relating in this preface is all the things that Elward Elwes, Ellis sorry, taught Tim and Kathy Keller about race, taught them how to see things that they never would have seen before, because he was patient with them. He was willing to walk with them and hang out with them and get to know them. But what I want to, you to see is how this is just an example here. Um, he's talking about certain things, and I don't know what some of you think about some of these things, but just the empathy, the willingness to listen to a perspective that wasn't his, I think is commendable. Two slides. No one will die, I promise. Elward, that's his African-American, uh, you know, newfound friend at the cafeteria, simply paid us, Tim and Kathy Keller, the compliment of speaking with candor. He laid out some basic ideas about race and race relations that we never forgot. I remember three particularly vividly. One was that white folks did not have to be personally bigoted, personally bigoted, 
toward individuals of another race in order to support social, educational, judicial, and economic systems and customs that automatically privilege whites over others. We thought that every person's condition was purely the result of their own choices, so that if you were poor, it was mainly your fault. Elward showed us that this was simplistic to the point of being false. Another was that the Euro-white culture is nearly invisible to white Christians. When you come into my church, he said, and you see how we worship and sing and preach, you think that's the black way. And then Keller says, white Christians don't realize how much of what they say and do in church is not from the Bible, but rather is shaped by their cultural factors. A third thing we learned was why white people are so unaware of these realities. What are you, what are you talking about? Elward said, we non-whites have to know the white culture in order to survive. When we come into your workplaces and retail spaces and organizations, we have to learn how you regard time and use space, how you understand relationships between the individual and the group, how you think and solve problems and express emotion and handle failures and judge status. But for you to function well in your society, you don't need to understand us or our culture and differences. And then Keller adds, in short, nearly every racial minority in the US understands Euro-white culture pretty well, but we whites are far more ignorant of how the cultures of others operate. Elward once said to us, quote, you can pick up the topic of race for an evening discussion and then the rest of your week, you don't have to think about it. Race is an abstraction for you, something out there. For me, every time I look in the mirror, I think of race. We have to think about it all the time. But when we get into a church with white brothers and sisters and want to talk about it as much as we need to, you all quickly get tired of it. What I appreciate about this, whatever you think about these different issues, is that Keller doesn't go like, I don't need to hear that. He doesn't instantly get into the defensive and start saying, because I haven't had that experience, it's not real. He listens and dates this as a key moment in his the renewal of his thinking in Christ. This is from the 70s, way before, you know, this was talked about like it is today, at least in mainstream, we didn't, you know, um, social media circles and the news cycle and all that. So anyway, that's an example of the kind of compassion, humble listening. Maybe, maybe I should validate somebody else's experience, even though it hasn't been mine. I sure want them to do that for me. Finally, the word. Ostensibly, the word of Christ, as each individual, each of us relates to that and is changed by it, that's supposed to be the unifying story that renews our minds, changes my identity. But what about when God's people disagree on its meaning? You know, we got the Bible given to everybody in the 16th century, Gutenberg's press, Martin Luther's translation, then it went viral. And the Bible becomes democratically accessible for the first time in some ways ever. Definitely, you know, since the, the, the early post-Christian and medieval period, one and a half millennia, basically. And then what happens? Well, fast forward to today, and we have 130,000 denominations. And a lot of them are on the verge of splitting at any given moment, as they all claim the Bible only. Scripture of sola, the motto of the Protestant Reformation. So it's supposed to unify us. But on the ground, this source of unity even has often been invoked as a bone of contention. Well, thankfully, and we're going to talk about this in weeks to come, Lord willing, there are biblical texts 
that address what we're to do when we disagree on certain aspects of Scripture. And so we plan to talk about this kind of diversity, hermeneutic diversity, if you will, interpretive diversity, the diversity of how we read the Bible. So in sum, the individual-to-individual individual diversity of personal temperament and idiosyncrasy, the people-group-to-people-group people group diversities of races and generations and genders and generations and political leanings and so on, and the diversity of biblical interpretation that so often manifest themselves in the life of a church. All of these and more does the cross and empty tomb, together with the Spirit of God coursing through us, enable us, the body of Jesus Christ, not only to accommodate these things, but to be made better by them if we'll open ourselves up to it. Appreciate your attention today. Sorry I went so long. Next week, I'm going to do like a 10-minute, not a story.